Well, guess what happens when a person totally surrenders their life to Jesus Christ? Guess what happens to a person who begins to take God seriously in their life and, and His Word and, and all that? Guess what happens? That begins to attract some attention from some unwanted sources. And guess what happens when a whole church gets full of people who are surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ and taking His Word seriously and loving one another and, and devoted to God and becoming radically generous and giving their lives away to bless other people. Guess what happens to a whole church that's, that's making progress like that? Exactly the same thing. It begins to attract some unwanted attention from some invisible sources, namely Satan and his demons. I'm wondering how many of you personally, individually, you've experienced opposition from Satan whenever you set out to, to get going for God. Have you felt that? You thought, man, do I have a target on my back or what? You know, it just seems like you, you make a commitment to start going all out for God and all Hades breaks loose. Well, we need to understand that whether, you know, both individually and as a church, when we start getting serious about God, Satan starts getting serious about us because we become a threat to him and his cause and his kingdom. And he sets out to scheme and to plan and to strategize the demise of an individual Christ follower or a church. And he's got some strategies that he uses. He's got a lot of weapons in his arsenal, time-tested, proven over the years. Two of his favorites, though, when it comes to a church, are external assault and internal dissension. External assault is when Satan is able to stir people up outside the walls of the church to launch an attack on the church. Opponents, critics, detractors outside the church start to spread rumors, launch campaigns, make vicious accusations, throw up roadblocks, try to intimidate or belittle the leaders or the members of a church in order to discourage the people. And we've heard and read about some of this just recently, haven't we? This goes on because Satan feels threatened by a church that's advancing forward and getting serious about God. Last week uh, in our study of Philippians that we're titling uh, Cup of Joy, we read in chapter 1 about a church that was experiencing those external attacks Persecution, it's called. And Paul finished up that chapter by saying, stand firm against those attacks. Don't cave in. Don't collapse under the pressure. Stand firm for God. But probably more insidious and maybe more effective is his second weapon that he loves to use, and that's internal dissension from within a church. See, how does that happen? Well, that happens when Satan is able to find people within a congregation whose lives are not in full touch with God. And he begins to stir them up somehow in such a way that they begin to create division, disunity, and dissension within a church. I invite you to take the study guide out of your bulletin today because we're going to continue our series in Philippians looking at chapter 2 where Paul shifts his attention from standing against the outward attacks 
to helping a church deal with the internal disunity of which there was an undercurrent in that church. And we know this was going on in in this church in Philippi because of what Paul writes in chapter 2 and also because of a very specific plea that he makes a little bit later on in chapter 4 and verse 2. In chapter 4 and verse 2, he points out by name two women in this church who apparently were not getting along. Some kind of a a dispute had broken out between them and and he, he names them by name. And he says, you know, come together, resolve your differences. Amazingly, our camera crews were there when this dispute broke out. And uh, I want you to take a look at just how things can escalate in a, in a conflict like this. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, I love the bumper sticker, war is not the answer. <laughs> well, I don't know if anything, uh, if it got to that level of uh, escalation between those two ladies at the church in Philippi, but um, okay, come back here. Philippians chapter 2. But, you know, we laugh at that, but it happens, doesn't it? It's something that starts out as a little small, little disagreement, and it just kind of escalates, and pr- pretty soon everything's out of control, and people are doing things and saying things they never thought they would do. It just happens. And um... <laughs> All right. Paul decides to address some of the, the uh, disunity and dissension and conflict that was in this church. Now, overall, this church was a very healthy church. We mentioned this uh, last weekend. It really was. But some of this was going on, and he knew that if it was allowed to grow, it had the potential to, to kind of poison the water stream of the church. So he decides to address it. Now, I've been trying to give you a, a sermon, the whole sermon in a sentence each week. So I'm going to attempt that again this week. Somebody recently said you need to make them a little catchier, okay, so we can remember them. So here's my best shot at that. Today's sermon in a sentence. Here we go. The joy of unity really flows when selfish living really goes. My best shot, all right? The joy of unity really flows when selfish, self-centered living really goes, goes away. It's true, isn't it? Here's how he starts out. It's a a plea for unity. Verse 1. Paul writes, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, if you've experienced any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. What's this? It's a plea for unity, isn't it? Now, Paul was a good leader. Good leaders have their eyes and ears open. He'd apparently heard that this stuff was going on. And like a good leader, he decided to address it. And that's what good leaders do when they sense there's something present that's going to hijack unity in their organization or their group or their team or their church. They address it. Now, this unity and division is a problem, is it not? It shouldn't be ignored. You know, whether it's uh, disunity in a marriage or a family or a serving team, or a church, when community starts to break down, problems occur. People get hurt. 
Anger comes in. Bitterness takes root. People get wounded. Energy is diverted away from the mission or from the cause. The enemy gets encouraged. And God gets grieved. Are those good things? None of those are good things. And Paul said, well, I've got to deal with this. I've got to call these people back to, to unity. And so in effect, he says, listen, people, if Jesus Christ means anything at all to you, if you've had any benefits, you've experienced any benefits from being a Christian and being in God's church, then please pull together, he says. Pull together. Get on the same page. Work through your differences and come together in unity. Just in case they couldn't remember what unity and teamwork looked like, he gives them a a clear fourfold description here. He says, be like-minded, have the same love, one in spirit, and one in purpose. That's a picture of unity, isn't it? Like a, like a, a rowing team where everybody's rowing in sync. They're all rowing together towards the goal. One of the reasons I'm excited about this uh, 40 Days of Purpose campaign that we're talking about around here starts at the end of February is I'm excited about the fact that all of our church is going to come together on the same page as we discover together God's purposes for our lives here on the earth, what on earth we're here for. And I, I've been here since the beginning of this church. I can't remember a time when, when our whole church participated in the same emphasis. I mean, our, our adults and our students and our children. Um, even our babies, maybe, you know. Purpose-driven living in the nursery or whatever. <laughs> so I'm excited about our, our church unifying around that. Last weekend I mentioned that we're starting to sign up people for host homes to um, one day a week show a 20-minute video in your home and invite people over to, to view these videos that are about discovering God's purposes for life. And I'm the first one on that list. And I know that I think we're up to maybe 15 or 20 now. But there is um, in the lobby... There's a Grand Central Station out there for 40 Days of Purpose, and I encourage you to sign up to be a host home during that period of six weeks. You know, unity is a beautiful thing. Uh, just the last, I spent the last couple of days with our new expanded Board of Elders because you all voted to approve our, uh, the three elders that were presented to you, and we spent the last couple of days together. And I want to tell you, there's a lot of unity there. And there's just something about being united with a group of people. Think about a marriage. I mean, it's what's better than a husband and wife just growing together in unity? Or a team, a serving team. I saw Don over here. Where are you? And Paul and these guys just came back from their trip down to the uh, Gulf Coast region, just serving down there. And we got to follow along on the blog and see the pictures and what you guys were doing. And I can just imagine that it was just an awesome experience coming together in unity around a mission like that and serving. Just something about unity. And Paul was sensing that it was slipping away in this church at Philippi and, and he pleads for them to come together and recover that and then he shows them the way. He gives them a pathway back to unity. And it begins in verse 3 where he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you... Would you underline that phrase? each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
This text, these two verses, more than any other in the whole Bible, changed my life when I first saw them with spirit eyes, when I first saw what it was really saying. And I was 18 years old, and up to that point, I'd pretty much lived a self-centered, self-focused, self-absorbed life. And God was working, and, and I came across this passage in my devotions, and I read that, and I said, that's different. You mean it's not all about me? <laughs> you mean it's not all about you know me and my stuff and, and promoting myself? This says I'm supposed to look to the interests of others and esteem others better than myself. Wow! God used His words to change my whole outlook. I see a couple of interesting things here. Number one, we are all responsible to preserve unity. All of us in this church. It says, each of you. That's each of us. We all have a responsibility to preserve unity in this church. It's not just my job or the elders' job or the deacons or small group leaders. Everybody's responsible. If you you know, see something or hear of something or someone sowing seeds of discord among the brethren, don't just think, well, I hope Pastor Steve finds out about that and does something about it. No, you. You can do something about it. It's your church. Actually, it's God's church. But He's entrusted it to our care. We're all responsible to preserve unity. Then Paul talks about some attitudes that that really hurt unity and cause it to suffer. We'll call them unity killers. And he says, you know what? If you guys are going to recover unity in your church, there's three attitudes that got to go. Selfish ambition, vain conceit, and looking only to your own interests. Let's call the first one a competitive spirit. How many of you are competitive by nature? You just love to win. Now, there's a place for competition, right? There's a, there's a, there are healthy outlets for ca- competition. Where? Out on the playing field. Out on the court. Wherever. That's where competition is, well, can be healthy. But Paul says, look, if you're bringing that competitive spirit into your relationships, into your group, into the church, that's going to hurt unity and is hurting unity. This is when a person, you know, it's all about winning and coming out on top and being right and having the last word in an argument. I got to win. Everything's a contest. Paul says that attitude kills unity and it's got to go. Leave competition out on the playing field where it belongs. Don't bring it into relationships. And then he talks about vain conceit. And the word literally means to be puffed up, (laughs) filled up with yourself. Boy, does that lead to problems. In a marriage, when a spouse is just full of themselves, on a serving team, in a a group, in an office where you work, someone's just full of themselves, it's all about them. That's vain conceit. Kills unity. And then a self-focused mindset, looking only to your own interests. Paul said, look, these attitudes got to go. A competitive spirit, a proud heart, a self-focused mindset. By the way, who do those things sound like? Somebody said me. (laughs) Who else? Don't they sound a little bit like Satan? Proud heart? 
Wasn't that attitude what got him kicked out of heaven? You know, I got to be first. I got to be the best. I should be receiving worship. You know, when we embrace a self-centered mindset, we're really playing right into the hands of the enemy. Sometimes we don't think about it like that, but that's selfishness. That's its origin. Paul said, get rid of the unity killers. Well, what do you do if you see these kind of attitudes in your heart? I think the Spirit of God would say, well, own it. Admit it. Call it what God calls it. It's sinful. It's selfish. Admit that you can't change that about yourself and ask God, the Holy Spirit, to start working in your heart. Say, God, change me. Change me. Because our natural wiring pattern is, is selfish, isn't it? He said, those things got to go. And he said, there's some other attitudes that need to come in. They need to come and stay. We'll call them unity helpers. First is a humble heart. A humble heart. In humility, he says, consider others better than yourselves. Now, humility, in its truest form, is not walking around saying, oh, I'm nothing but a worm. You know, I'm no good to anybody. I'm a big fat zero. That's not humility. That's weirdness of some sort, you know. It's not healthy. You need counseling or something. But true humility is seeing yourself accurately as God sees you. And God does not see any of you as a worm. You are a cherished treasure of the Most High God. It's what you are. But you're not better than anybody else. People are people, nothing more, right? That's an accurate perception. That's what humility is. My experience is the closer I get to God, the more His humility rubs off on me because He's a humble God. One thing we know is that proud people are not close to God because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And Paul writes to this church, he says, people, embrace a humble heart. And then he said, not only that, but an honoring attitude needs to prevail. Consider others better than yourselves. An honoring attitude. Esteem other people. There are some marriages in this church that are on a different level. They're on a different level of, of closeness and intimacy they're on a different level of maturity and spirituality. And when I, you know, when I look and observe these couples and try to discern what's at the core of all that, I always come back to this, an honoring attitude. Those spouses honor each other. They bless each other with their words and with their actions. They honor each other when they're together, and you can tell, and they even honor each other when they're apart and talking to other people. An honoring attitude brings unity, doesn't it? Imagine if your office, everybody in your office had an honoring attitude. Kind of hard to imagine, huh? (laughs) The next one is a servant spirit. A humble heart, an honoring attitude, a servant spirit. Paul says, look, look to the interests of other people. Have you ever had somebody in your life who had a servant spirit towards you? 
when I was, uh, I worked in the marketplace when we first moved here for about five years, and I had a supervisor who had a servant spirit towards me. And once he came to me, he said, he said Steve, I see something in you. I'm going to do everything I can to make you a success. I'm like, whoa, cool. <laughs> when do we start? <laughs> That's rare, isn't it? That's a rare breed of person, especially in the marketplace. Someone who's wanting to push you ahead of them. Make you successful? But that's what a servant spirit does. (laughs) In fact, I submit to you that the way to become truly successful yourself is to help as many other people be successful as possible. To push other people up ahead of yourself. Talk about unity. That will bring a spirit of unity to a team or to a family or to a marriage like just about nothing else. And speaking of a servant spirit, Paul kind of piggybacks off that concept and says, let me tell you about the person with the ultimate servant spirit, Jesus Christ. In verse 5 he says, hey, Philippians, let Jesus Christ's attitude be your attitude. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Speaking of a selfless servant, verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Verse 7, But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he paints this portrait of servanthood. This passage, these few verses form kind of a hymn that was probably sung by the early church in worship to Jesus Christ because they were enamored, they were in awe of this man who came from heaven to earth. And really what we find here is a a picture of, of Jesus descending from heaven to earth. Seven decisions that He made to come down to our level. Seven steps down. I want you to look at them. First is he surrendered his position. Verse 6, it says, He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be clutched and held on to. Church, we have no idea Jesus' lifestyle in heaven. We have no idea what that was like. But he was willing to let it go in order to come down to this earth. Second, he gave up his rights and privileges. Third, he chose to reverse roles. Let me ask you this. Is Jesus a king or a servant by nature? Which is he? He's a king. But when he came to this earth, he did the role reversal thing. He took on the nature of a servant. I mean, was his entrance to this world the grand entrance of a a potentate, was it? humble fourth step down is he identified with those he served you know if you're going to serve someone you got to get down on their level don't you you guys experienced that this week people in need it says he was made in human likeness it never ceases to amaze me that if you had lived in those days you could have been walking down a dusty path in galilee and passed this man just passed this man hey 
and it wouldn't have struck you that you had just passed the Creator of the universe. Does that give you goosebumps like it gives me? God! In human flesh, He was found in appearance to be a man. Not only that, but He accepted unfair treatment, didn't He? Was He treated like He deserved to be treated? I think of Him standing before Pilate at His trial. and Here's God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, standing before this man, and Pilate looks at Him and says, You better answer me because I've got the power to take your life. I think, man, if I'd been Jesus, I would have said, You little two-bit piece of tinfoil. you got no power unless I give you power. You want to talk about taking somebody's life? You blink, I could snuff you out like this with a word. And yet it says he was led like a lamb to his slaughter, and yet he did not open his mouth. He humbled himself. He was treated unfairly. Took another step down. He submitted to authority, both his earthly authority, his parents, as Scott mentioned earlier, and then his authority in heaven, his father. And finally, he laid down his life. He laid down his life in the most cruel, talk about cruel and unusual punishment, the most humiliating form of execution known to man, crucifixion. What kind of God is this? What kind of God is this, a creator who would stoop to not only enter his creation, but to become his creation? It boggles the mind. And what kind of love, what kind of foreign, otherworldly kind of love would possess the heart of God to leave the lifestyle of heaven to come to earth and be treated with the kind of junk treatment that Jesus got here on this earth. What kind of love would do that? What kind of Savior is this? See Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane there, in what was perhaps the absolute most intense moment in all of history. Jesus in the Garden, He says, My soul is overwhelmed with anguish to the point of death. And he's praying there and it says, great drops of sweat like blood began to fall on the ground. He was in agony. Father, if there's another way, if there's another way, I don't want to become sin. My righteous soul has never been tinged by sin and now I'm going to become the sins of the world. And yet in that moment he said, not my will, not my will. Your will be done. And why? To redeem, to pay the price of eternal salvation for you and me. What kind of Savior is that? What kind of a servant leader was this man who would give up his own life that others might live forever? Talk about pushing other people up ahead of you. What kind of servant leader was this man, Jesus? I'll tell you what kind of servant leader he was. The kind I want to follow every day for the rest of my life. The kind I want to live for 24-7, 365. That kind of leader. Servant leader. 
Let me ask you, are you following Jesus? Are you following Jesus Christ? The kind of love that He demonstrated for you? You know, Luke 6.40 says, A disciple, when they are fully trained, will be like their master. Do you want to be like Jesus Christ? Do you want to be like Him? And you've got to do what He did. You've got to come down so you can lift others up. You've got to come down so you can lift others up. That's what He did. He came down to our level because we could not get up to His. And He brought us to God. Now this last part is really cool. What happens when you stop trying to promote yourself and you decide that my life's going to be about blessing and promoting other people? What happens? Not only does that bring unity back, the joy of unity back to a marriage or a team or a church, but something else happens. God sees that. God sees it. Notice the promotion of the servant in verse 9. Therefore... Because Jesus laid down His life, because He came to earth from heaven, therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Jesus the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. Who's that? Did you know the demons and Satan are one day going to bow their knee to Jesus Christ and say, You're Lord. You are Lord. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what happens? When you adopt the mind of Jesus Christ, when you decide that your life is going to be about promoting others and esteeming others, God sees it and He begins to promote you. That's what happened to Jesus. Friends, it's all over the Bible. It says if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. Why? Because God sees a humble heart and says, that's what I'm looking for. There's two ways up. There's God's way and our way. And God's way up is down, isn't it? The path to promotion in God's mind goes through the servants' quarters. I want to draw uh, two quick lessons for life here from, uh, from this great, great passage. I want you to think about these. Number one, think about this. Our unity as a church, our unity is a big deal to God. So let's make every effort to preserve it. When I read this passage, I get the sense this is, this is big to God. So let's fight to keep our hearts free of selfish ambition and pride. Let's use our tongues to promote harmony and peace and unity, to bless one another and not tear each other down. Let's be courageous enough to resolve the conflicts that will inevitably come into our lives because we're human. 
and we're going to have conflicts. Our unity is a big, big, big deal to God. Let's make every effort to preserve it. And second, Jesus' suffering on the cross is a big, big deal to God. So let's not be guilty of taking it for granted. Amen? It's a big deal to God that His one and only Son, the only begotten One of the Father, said, I'll go. Took seven steps down to our level in order to secure eternal salvation for us. That's a big deal to God. So let's be in awe of His incredible descent to this earth. Let's be challenged by the astounding way that Jesus lived His life. Let's follow His example. Listen, let's never, ever, ever forget what Jesus went through for us. Let's not forget. And let's worship Him with all we've got because of His amazing love for us. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And the team's going to come back. We are going to worship for a few more minutes. Be caught up in His love for us. I want to ask you this first. Think about unity for a minute. Think about unity in your family. Think about unity in your marriage, on your ministry or serving team or your group or this church. How many of you would uh, say, Steve, God's speaking to me about doing my part in preserving unity in some area of my life. Would you lift your hands? God's speaking to me about doing my part. I, I want to do what He's telling me to do. Amen. Amen. Please. Please do, do what He's telling you to do. You can put your hands down. If it's, if it's talk to someone, if it's own up to something, if it's asking for forgiveness, if it's putting down, you know, complaining and grumbling, that sort of thing. How many of you would lift your hands and say, Steve, I'm going to commit to do my part to preserve unity in this church. Would you lift your hands? I'll do my part. I know that Satan would love to, uh, you know, wreak his havoc in this body. I'll do my part. Thank you. Thank you. It's all of our responsibility. All of us. Then how many of you would lift your hands and say, Steve, Jesus' death on the cross is a big deal to me. It's a big deal. And I worship Him for it. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and do just that. Let's worship Him for His amazing love.